If you have your Bibles, open them with me this morning once again in the book of John, John chapter 4. We've been in John chapter 4 for several weeks now. If you're a visitor with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. We have been studying the book of John just verse by verse, chapter by chapter. If you've missed a couple weeks, well, last week we concluded our study of Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. Uh, That was an interaction that took a few weeks to unpack. And today, as we move on in John's gospel account, the scene shifts quite a bit this morning. It shifts both in location as well as in substance. For two days, Jesus, after his interaction with the Samaritan woman, for two days, Jesus stayed in the region of Samaria and ministered to this despised people group, at least as far as the Jews were concerned. And now, in this passage, as you're about to hear, he returns to his own people, to the Jews, to his own kinsmen. But before I read, I want to remind you simply of, and I've already done this, I probably will do this several more times, but I remind you of the purpose of the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 31, he tells us why he writes all of these things, what he's intending to accomplish, and it's this. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Belief. Believe, that's what John encouraged. And this concept of faith or belief is a central one for John. So much so that many people consider John and call John's gospel account the gospel of belief. The Greek word pistuo, which is translated into faith or belief in one form or another, is used in this gospel over a hundred times. It's a consistent drum that he beats. We've seen it already in the first few chapters. We'll see it again here this morning. So John chapter 4, we're going to start where we left off last week. John chapter 4, verse 43, reading to the end of the chapter. If you're able and willing, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. Listen as I read. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew 
that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. As I said to you already, this is a passage about faith. It's a passage about belief. It's about a faith that is to be commended and a faith that is to be avoided. It's about saving faith. And it's also about a faith that continues throughout our lives. Let me begin with this question, as I often do. What comes to your mind when you think of the word faith? Of course, we could attack that word from many different angles. We could think about it from many different ways. Those in the world, when they hear the word faith, what do they think? I think often people on the street think of faith in terms of wishful thinking, a shot in the dark. A crutch that some people just need and benefit from. The Bible speaks a lot about faith, of course. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 11.1 gives a definition of faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. That's a beautiful definition of faith. Our historic catechisms are super helpful in this regard. Heidelberg Catechism number 21, what is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in His Word, but also an assured confidence which the Holy Ghost works by this gospel in my heart, that not only to others but to me also remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Certain knowledge and assured confidence. I love those phrases to describe faith. And then there's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest. Two great words. We receive and rest upon Him alone for salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. There's a lot to this concept. There's a lot to this word, faith. We could spend a lot of time unpacking just those catechism answers and, and, and that one verse in Hebrews chapter 11. But today I just want to limit ourselves to this passage. And so what I believe this passage displays and points us to and teaches us about the nature of true faith and just some of its characteristics. And not just saving faith, but living by faith, right? The Christian life is not just one saying or reciting the sinner's prayer and then we're done. No, the Christian life is a life of living day by day by faith through the gospel of Jesus. Now, this passage, of course, doesn't say all there is to say about faith. It only says a little bit. But what it does say, I think, is incredibly practical. It's incredibly helpful. 
And so three things this morning that I want you to see found in this account that I hope will challenge and encourage us in our lives of faith. I want to bring this story alive to us a little bit and hopefully give you something to walk out of here with as well. The first one is this. True faith involves coming to the end of yourself. True faith involves coming to the end of yourself. And by implication, since we're here in the church, since we're opening up God's Word, since this is a story about Jesus coming to the end of yourself and ultimately coming to Jesus. As we jump back into our study of John chapter 4, after some transitional verses, and we'll get to those, a new encounter arises. I'm going to skip the first few verses for just a few minutes. And an official comes on the scene. Now the word official here in John chapter 4 likely refers to someone in the service of the king. In this case, in this time and place, that would be Herod. Though Herod wasn't technically a king, he wasn't technically a monarch, he was a tetriarch, but nevertheless, Herod was the one with power. He was the one who ruled under Roman rule in this region. And so we think that this official probably worked for Herod. Some have speculated that he was a Gentile centurion. I don't think can say that with absolute certainty, although if you think about him as a Gentile centurion, it does complete the trifecta of Jesus' interactions and encounters in the early part of his ministry here, right? He has already interacted with a Jewish teacher. He's interacted with a Samaritan despised woman. And now here he is interacting with a Gentile centurion. Whatever this man was, he was an official. Whatever he was specifically, we do know this. He was a man of importance. He was a man of some means, right? Financial means and otherwise. I suspect that this was a man who was used to getting things done, used to ordering and accomplishing Now he's confronted with a problem that he can't handle, a problem that is both outside of his expertise and that is outside of his position, whatever that position is. He has no more options. And so he comes to Jesus, not as an official, but as a father, a father with a gravely sick son. Like so many others in the region, he had heard the stories. He had heard the reports. Now John records this event that we just read as the second sign. The wedding in Cana where Jesus turned water to wine was the first sign. But we know that there were many other things happening in between those events. Chapter 2, verse 23, reports. That there were signs that Jesus was doing. John just doesn't record them. And so this man had heard. And now he comes in some measure of humility, right? He comes hunting a carpenter turned miracle worker. The ESV translates it as a simple request and ask. Other English translations 
translated as he begged. And I suspect there was some urgency to it, right? He, he pleaded with Jesus, would you please come and heal my son? He has recognized that his need is greater than his ability, than anyone's abilities, and so he comes to Jesus. And this, my friends, is where faith starts, right? We know this. Isn't this what we pray for in the lives of our friends and our families who don't know Jesus? Isn't this what we pray for, that they would come to the end of their ropes to the end of themselves, to the end of their reserves, and would recognize that there is no other option than to run to Jesus. When I pray this, for those close to me, I pray for gentleness, right? Because often the way the Lord brings us to the end of ourselves can be severe. A severe mercy. And yet sometimes that's what we need, to be shaken out of our stupor and to realize we can't do it. We must run to Jesus. As the Samaritan woman came to understand Jesus is the water that satisfies, none of our man-made cisterns can hold water. So keep praying. But coming to Him in faith is just the beginning, right? It's the beginning of a life of faith, a journey of faith. So the second truth this morning is not just true faith is coming to the end of yourself and coming to Jesus, but true faith takes Jesus at His Word. True faith takes Jesus at His Word. I don't know how many of you parents have heard the phrase, two words spoken in exclamation, prove it, prove it. I remember hearing that a lot in my home when my kids were younger. One sibling would say something that was far-fetched and immediately a demand for verification would be required, right? Prove it. I mean, that's how we are. Even as adults, we are skeptics at heart, I think. That's not to say that ours is a blind faith. That's not to say that all proof or evidence is bad. I'm not saying that. But ours is a faith that recognizes who Jesus is and responds to Him accordingly. Takes Him at His word. Getting back to our story, this man has traveled from Capernaum to Cana, where Jesus now is, to ask Jesus if he will come back with him and heal his son. And, and Jesus responds to his request with this interesting phrase that we find in verse 48, which we'll talk about in, a more, in, in just a moment. But the man seemingly ignores it and just simply pleads again. And what happens next is interesting. Jesus doesn't do what the man asks him to do. He doesn't say, yeah, just give me a minute. I'll come with you. Instead, he gives five words to this man. Go, your son will live. Whatever is done, 
must be done on Jesus' terms, not on ours. Jesus didn't owe this man anything. Go, your son will live. Don't you wonder how this man in high authority, probably well-respected, responded to that answer by Jesus to those five words? Maybe he was taken, I mean, I suspect he was taken back a bit. I'm sorry? Okay. okay. That, that's it? You, you just want me to leave? Yes, go, Jesus says. No boom, no flash of light, no angel appearance, no goosebumps, no star in the sky to guide him home. Just the word of the word. That's all he got. Jesus has spoken. God has spoken. Enough said. And what does the text say? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke. Now if this dad had, as we kind of think about the story and the logistics of the story, if this dad had left Capernaum at about sunrise, Capernaum was about 14, 15 miles away from Cana. If he had left Capernaum at about sunrise, came down to Cana to meet Jesus at about noon, had heard Jesus speak these five words to him at about 1 p.m., as he returned and obeyed Jesus and left, he would have had to stop for the night, likely, on the way back. And that's exactly what our text implies that he did. Now, can you imagine the walk? Kind of a half a day of mulling over this and then spending the night somewhere, thinking about it, wondering about these five words that have been spoken, what thoughts must have been running through this dad's head? And the next morning, he gets up the final distance to his home in Capernaum, and indeed he finds out it worked. His son was recovering. And just to make sure it wasn't a coincidence... There's this verification of the timing that goes on. When did it happen? Because I remember when Jesus said these words. When did it happen? And indeed, the timing matches just perfectly. Jesus had performed a long-distance healing. Without sight, without touch, without any kind of fanfare, this family had their son back. The one who is life has spoken life. True faith takes Jesus at his word. And it's a word that never fails. Ever. So as we think about applying this into our lives, of course, we're here this morning. Most of us, maybe all of us are here this morning because we believe Right? We believe His promises of mercy to sinners. We believe His forgiveness that He gives to us through the cross. We believe that there is glory that awaits us beyond the grave. We believe on Sunday it's easy or easier to take Jesus at His word. The challenge comes tomorrow morning. 
and Wednesday afternoon and Friday evening. That's the challenge. How easily do we come to Jesus on our own terms with our own set of demands? How often do we come to Him insisting on a sign rather than simply trusting in His Word? How hard is it to take Jesus at His Word? We could apply this in many different ways. And I trust the Holy Spirit will deal with you as He wants to deal with you. But let me just challenge all of us in one area where this applies. Hold on. Buckle up. How about in our finances? How about in our giving? What, what do our checkbooks reveal? If you still have a checkbook. What do our checkbooks reveal about trust in God's Word? Proverbs 3, 9 and 10, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, your vats bursting with wine. Proverbs eleven twenty four: One gives freely and grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Acts 20, 35, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, I'm not here this morning preaching health and wealth. No, but I do wonder sometimes how much we believe that the Lord will care for us when we give Him the first fruits of our labor. Many of you, most of you, maybe all of you here this morning are faithful givers, and I commend you for that, but some of you need to trust God more in your giving. And I'm not saying that to put a law on you, a burden of law on you. I'm just inviting you to take Jesus at His word, to reap His promised blessing on those who are generous, on those who hold loosely to the things that He has given. You see, as this Father shows us, faith trusts Jesus enough to walk away. We can walk away from our anxieties because He promises to care for us. We can walk away from our temptations because He promises something better. We can walk away from our desire to control everything in our lives because He is a sovereign, good Father. We can walk away and we can just let His Word be enough. Despite what I might feel or not feel, despite what I might see or not see, Jesus doesn't have to prove himself. He has shown himself faithful. Take Jesus at his word. Now, if you're like me, at this point in the sermon, you're lamenting all the ways that you haven't trusted. That your faith has been weak. All the times you failed to believe Jesus and to believe what He says, to believe His Word, and instead you've believed a lie of your own making, a lie of the evil one, a lie of the world. Well, there's good news for you. There's good news for me. And it's our last point this morning. God's grace extends even to imperfect faith. 
God's grace extends even to imperfect faith. Back to verses 43 through 45, those verses that we skip. Let me talk about the larger context to this scene. Remember, Jesus had just spent two days in Samaria. Two days where he had found success. Right? They invited him to stay. They had open hearts. They had willing and eager ears. They were converting and coming to him and trusting in him. And now he returns to his own people, to those who we know from the gospel account already, to those who have challenged him already. Remember those who were sent by the Jews in chapter 1 to challenge Jesus and what he was doing? John has already given us an indication that this will characterize his ministry. John 1, 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And so as John introduces this scene, this shift from Samaria to Galilee, he inserts this phrase in verse 43, a phrase that is spoken by Jesus and remembered by his followers. A prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Jesus knows he's not going to be honored here. And yet he's going anyway. But then in the very next verse, do you see what it says? The Galileans welcomed him. So which is it, John? Does the prophet have no honor or are they welcoming him? What's going on here? Well, yes, they welcomed him, but that's not the same as receiving him which is what John will talk about later in the gospel. What John is communicating is that the welcome, the faith of the Galileans, it's shallow. Jesus is, he's their local hero, right? He's the carpenter's son who's gone to Jerusalem and created a ruckus. He's dazzled, he's impressed, he's entertained audiences, he's done crazy stuff. Come do some stuff for us, Jesus. While the despised Samaritans are turning to Him, the covenant community just wants miracles or political action. That's what they want from Jesus. And so Jesus, He sees right through it, and He therefore says with the plural you in verse 48, unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. In other words, you want me, but you want me only on your own terms. And he's not necessarily singling out this father, even though the father's kind of caught in the middle of this. He's not singling out this father, but the father is representative of this larger group, this larger frustration of Jesus. Because the father is coming and saying, if you do this, I'll believe. You see, miracles can make us consumers rather than worshipers. Signs can produce fans, but not always followers. Of course, signs and wonders are important. They have their place. In John and in the whole of the New Testament, they're an important part of the faith spreading. They're meant to encourage and to point to faith, but faith can't solely be built upon them. 
That's what John is communicating here. It's what Jesus is communicating. Our faith must be grounded in who Jesus is, not just what he can do for us. We're in no position to demand anything from him. And so Jesus essentially asks, do you want me or do you simply want what I can do for you? Brothers and sisters, we all need to grow in this. I need to grow in this. This official needed to grow in this. You see, he had a need. He believed, it says, but he believed with an imperfect faith. But Jesus, in his gracious compassion, blessed that belief. Because later in our passage, we're told in verse 53, and he himself believed. Now he believes, and with a contagious faith that will extend to his entire household. You see, his faith had grown in that short time. It had matured from a miracle worker faith to a recognition of who Jesus really was and that he was inherently worthy. God's grace extends even to imperfect faith. Notice that when Paul tells the church in Rome, in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He doesn't say anything about the strength of that call. It's not about you. It's about the strength of the one that you call upon, that you look to. Jesus accepts and even blesses imperfect faith. Thank God he does. But he desires more. Weak, self-centered faith must mature into a deeper faith that is centered on Him. You see, it's that kind of faith that can weather suffering. When it seems like Jesus is not doing anything to make my life easy. But I know He's worthy. Going back to the very beginning about proof. Jesus doesn't need to prove anything to us. He has shown all that needs to be shown, living and dying and rising. And now he asks to be believed, to be trusted. Brothers and sisters, he knows you are not going to do it perfectly. But he looks forward to you coming to the end of yourselves, walking away, after hearing his word and leaving things, whatever those things might be, in his capable hands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the promises of your word. We confess that we are weak to grab a hold of them, that we are forgetful of them. And so we ask for the grace, we ask for the strength, Holy Spirit, to take you at your word that your word would permeate our hearts and our lives so much that our faith could weather any storm. Father, we plead with you. Imperfectly, we plead with you. Grateful for your compassion and for your condescension to sinners like us. Father, this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.